This is the Hebrew letter Hey on your uh, right, the Hebrew letter Yod on your left, and they will become important at some point during this sermon. Let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for all the people who have been praying for me and for this sermon. I thank you, you are God who listens to them, that you're answering their prayers. And I would like to claim your promise in 1 Timothy 3, 6, and 7, that all scripture is given by your inspiration. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that we may be mature Christians and fully equipped for every good work. And I pray this in the name of the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. Today we're going to study Sarah. She's one of the most important figures in the Bible. Judaism includes her among the seven women prophets of the Old Testament. The rabbis say that she is a greater prophet than was her husband Abraham. Sarah is also significant in Christianity. The New Testament refers to Sarah more often than it does to any other woman of the Old Testament. She stands right alongside of Abraham in the Hall of Faith as a pattern for believers to follow as uh, we read er earlier in that Hall of Faith. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age. Since she considered him faithful who had promised, therefore from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. That's Hebrews 11, 11 and 12. The same idea of Sarah as a faith forerunner is very beautifully expressed in another scripture we read earlier, Isaiah 51, 1 and 2. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. So Isaiah is presenting to us Sarah as an example for those who would seek the Lord and pursue righteousness. He declares that those who follow after God's will are Sarah's spiritual children. They're hewn from her quarry, the quarry of Sarah. And in this same vein, the New Testament consistently, over and over, encourages us to be children of Sarah to look to her as a role model for righteous living. A key example of this is 1 Peter 3, 6, and this is the translation from the Jewish New Testament. Sarah obeyed Abraham, honoring him as her Lord. And you are her children if you do what is right and do not succumb to fear. So 1 Peter says we're Sarah's children if we do what is right. But he also notes that in order to do what is right, we cannot succumb to fear. We need the opposite of fear, which is faith. 
So like Sarah, we are prone to fears that can hinder our faith. And today as we study Sarah's life, we're going to discover that her faith walk took a giant leap forward when God changed her name from Sarai to Sarah. And just like her, we are going to need God to change us in order that we can do that faith walk of righteous living. So let's spend a few minutes delving into the beautiful life of Sarah. Why did she fear? How did God enable her to overcome those fears? And what can we learn from her that can be applied today? All right, the first mention of Sarai in scripture is from the Torah. It's in Genesis 11, 27 through 30. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. So Sarai was married to Abram, who was actually her half-brother. Now, in most cultures, genetic diversity is like a very high priority when you arrange a marriage for someone. So why would their father, Terah, have coupled Abram and Sarai? Because he had a higher priority than genetic diversity. He had the priority of spiritual unity. Consider 2 Corinthians 6, 14, and 15. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has the Messiah with a demon? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? So Terah refused to betroth his children to the pagans around him. He knew Sarai and Abram were going to face tough times. Abram would need a godly wife. Sarai would need a godly husband. They would both need strong faith partners. They were the perfect match for each other. Due to the idolatry that was all around them, God instructed Terah to pick up his family, take his clan, and leave that place. But Terah made excuses, and he delayed, and he never went. Finally, after his death, Abram and Sarai set out to follow God's lead. They left their entire family behind, with the exception of Lot, and they headed to parts unknown. Sarah, no doubt, was fearful, but she moved on by faith. Genesis 12, 4 through 7. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and his nephew Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and all their possessions, and they set out to the land of Canaan. When they came to Canaan, they passed through the land to the place called Shechem. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Sarai and Abram obeyed God, they went to Canaan, and after they traveled well into the land, the Lord offered a promise that really involved both of them. The ground upon which they stood would one day belong to their offspring. 
Sarai truly desired to buy into that promise. She wanted it to be for herself. She wanted it to be for her husband. So she worshiped with Abram there at the altar he'd built. But faith is not easy. Sarai was 66 years old. And thus far, she had been unable to have children. Her faith was not yet strong enough for her to believe that her descendants would one day inherit this land. Sarai feared that God's promise might be negated by her own shortcomings. Indeed, after 10 long years in Canaan and still no child, Sarai, now 76 years old, became convinced it was her fault that God's promise had not been fulfilled yet. And so to address her fear, she devised a plan. If Abram took a surrogate wife, then by the custom of the day, if that surrogate gave birth while Sarai sat behind her and straddled her hips, then by law, that child would be the legal child of Sarai and Abram. So that was her plan, Genesis 16, 1 to 5. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Well, at first the plan seemed to work pretty well. Hagar got pregnant, but as always happens when we try to take control away from God, things started to get a little messy. When Hagar found herself to be pregnant, she despised Sarah. Now, one might reasonably ask the question, if it was Sarah's idea to use Hagar as a surrogate wife, then why did she tell Abram that this whole thing was his fault? Well, I was in a Bible study class when I was a young man, and this is what the Bible teacher told us. He said, men, someday you're gonna to go to your wife and you're gonna say, honey, I know you don't like me riding my motorcycle. It's dangerous, it takes me away from the family. I love you very much, and to honor you, I'm going to get rid of my motorcycle. He said, now, man, at that point, your wife is going to answer, no, honey, no, you love that motorcycle, you keep it. Now, he said, at that point, if you say, oh, thanks, honey, you're the most wonderful wife, you are the stupidest man who ever lived on the face of the earth. <laughs> Because the correct answer is, oh, thank you, honey. The correct answer is no. I'm giving up the motorcycle because I love you and I honor you. I believe that deep in Sarai's heart, 
when she told Abram, sleep with Hagar, she wanted him to say, no, you're my wife. The promise is to us, and I'm not sleeping with anyone else. Not now, not ever. That's why she felt it was Abram's fault. She felt he should have taken the lead. He should have refused, but he didn't. And now, one way or the other, they had to live with the sorry consequences of that decision. Now, we, we all reap the consequences of our own poor decisions, and those can seldom be mitigated. And over the next 14 years, the tension and strife in Sarai's house only grew worse. Hagar's son Ishmael grew into an unruly teenager. He was clearly not the promised one. Abram was now 99. Sarai was now 90. And they still had no child. But God's grace can bring redemption to any situation. We'll look at Genesis 17, the first five verses, and then verses 15 and 16. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. And moving to verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall no longer call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. The covenant was for Abram and Sarai. The promised child would truly be theirs. However, there's, there's something about this text that always bothered me. Um, God gave them a sign by changing their names. He put the Hebrew letter hey. He put the Hebrew letter hey into each of their names so that Abram, which means exalted father, became Abraham, father of many nations. Quite the promotion. But with Sarai, which means princess, the added hey merely alters her name to Sarah, which also means princess. This never seemed right to me, so I asked two of my friends, Rabbi Katz and Rabbi Hershey, if they could explain this disconnect. They both gave me the same answer. And so this is going to help us understand the letter Yud over here and the letter hey. This is what they told me. First they said, Sarai or Sarah doesn't exactly mean princess. It's more like a supremely exalted noblewoman. They said probably queen would be a better translation. Next, Sarai ends in the Hebrew letter Yod. It's the last letter of the Hebrew word Adonai which is the title by which Sarah would have addressed Abram as my Lord. Thus, Sarai means 
I am my Lord, Abram's queen. Everything he owns is under my purview. Sarah, on the other hand, ends in the Hebrew letter hey, which is the last letter in God's name. Yud, hey, vav, hey, Yahweh, although my friends did not say Yahweh. They said Hashem, the name, which also starts with hey. Sarah's new name meant I am God's queen and everything God owns is under my purview. They said, you see, Dave, it actually was quite the promotion for both of them. Whenever I discuss the Torah with the rabbis, I always get goosebumps all over me. Well, it's as if God took the two Hays from his name and gave one each to Abram and Sarah. In other words, his name is placed inside of them. He is now living within them, and they are his. Now, by the way, Sarai's name change to Sarah is also very well explained in the classic rabbinical commentary um, on, on the Torah called the Chumash. All right, so there we go, sorry. So it's called, it's called the Kumash. It's the quintessential Jewish commentary on the first five books of the Bible. And so I'd like to quote to you from that commentary. Previously, the covenant had been with Abraham alone. Now Sarah is made an equal party in the covenant. Just as Abraham's new role is signified by a name change, so is Sarah's. The name Sarai, which ends with the possessive yud, means my princess, meaning that her status to, was due to being Abram's wife. Now she would be called Sarah, which just means princess, which signifies she is a princess to all the nations of the earth, a status given to her by God. The reason I like this quote and the power of it is that no one would ever accuse an Orthodox Jewish rabbi of assigning to a woman a role that was solely the right of a man. <laughs> so when the Orthodox Jewish rabbis say Sarah and Abraham were equal spiritual partners in this, I think it bears weight. And with this, the passage we read earlier in 1 Peter now takes on an added meaning. Now, the first time, I kind of cheated, and I just read you half of it. So this time, Emily's going to read 1 Peter 3, 6, and 7. Sarah obeyed Abraham, honoring him as her Lord. You are her children if you do what is right and do not succumb to fear. You husbands, therefore, conduct your married life with respect for you should honor your wife as a fellow heir of the gift of life. This identical observation, it's almost like they copied it from each other, can be found in a famous sixth century Jewish midrash by Rabbi Tanhuma. He writes, Abraham's wife honored him and called him Lord, for it is written that Sarah said to her visitors, my Lord is old. That's Genesis 18:12. But conversely, God commanded Abraham to honor his wife by calling her princess. For that is the meaning of her Hebrew name, Sarah, 
Genesis 17, 15. So another lesson we're learning here is that corporate faith involves the mutual respect between men and women because we're joint heirs, as Peter says, joint heirs of the promises of God and of, of his Messiah. Well, as it was with Sarah and Abraham, so it is with us. We need God to change our hearts so we can live by faith. But when God changes our hearts, it doesn't just instantaneously get rid of all our fears. For soon after Sarah's name change, three angels came to visit them with some wonderful news, but Sarah again became afraid. Genesis 18, 10 to 15. The Lord said to Abraham, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child, now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, Oh, but you did laugh. So, Scripture says Sarah was again afraid. On the surface, she was afraid that she might have offended the angels, which that could be a very bad thing. But that's why she denied and said, oh, no, I didn't laugh. But, you know, the Lord just countered with, yes, you did laugh, but that's not going to nullify the miracle that I have for you. But on a deeper level, I think that the root fear Sarah had and what made her laugh in the first place when she heard the promise was that she was afraid to believe. And sometimes we can be afraid to believe. Life has let us down so often. We are just afraid to once again get our hopes built up for something that's too good to be true. But the three angels were there to encourage Sarah and to tell her, keep on believing, do not lose hope. Within the year, you are going to have a child. But Satan is a master at creating doubt. It's his profession. And he had a plan to attack Sarah's faith. Now, to put his scheme in context, just stop for a second. Recall the matriarchs and the patriarchs lived much longer than we do today. Sarah lived to 127 Abraham lived to 175. So Abraham at 99, by today's lifespans, would be more like somebody in their 70s. And, and Sarah at 90 would be more like someone today who was in their 60s. And in fact, scripture indeed notes that at this stage of her life, Sarah was well beyond menopause, that's what Genesis 18:11 says, but that she was yet a very, beautiful and desirable woman, as we can see in Genesis 12, 11. So because of her attractiveness, Sarai and Abraham had made a deal. Whenever they went to a new town, 
he would say she was his sister so that no one would kill him in order to get her. Now, years before, they had tried this down in Egypt with disastrous results, but that was part of their old life before their name change. There is no business repeating this lie now that they were faith, but they still had fears, and so they tried it again. But this time, it played right into Satan's hand. Genesis 20, 1 through 12. From there, Abraham sojourned in Gerar, and he said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah into his harem. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Then God said to Abimelech in the dream, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and so it was I who kept you from sinning against me, for I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said, What were you thinking that you did this thing? Abraham said, I thought, there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Sarah and Abraham made a huge mistake. God had promised that she would have a child within the year. You do the math. If she went in to the king's harem now, then when she became pregnant and found herself to be so, according to God's promise, there would always be the doubt as to whether Abraham was the true father or not. People would say, quite the coincidence for decades and decades. Sarai and Abram have no kids. She pays a visit to Abimelech. Presto, she's preggy. Their fears had not only put Abimelech's household in danger, it had put the promise of God up to doubt and shame. And when we fear, when we doubt God, we not only can hurt ourselves, but we can hurt God's kingdom. We can hurt the faith of those around us. But by God's grace, God intervened before anything could happen, ended the charade, because he wanted to receive the glory. And indeed, God's promise did come to pass within that year, as he had said. Genesis 21, 1 through 7. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac, which means laughter. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. 
Everyone who hears will laugh along with me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. As Hebrews 11.11 said, Sarah received power to conceive through her faith. And God fulfilled the promise that he gave her when he first removed that yod from the end of her name and replaced it with that hay from his own name. Now, interestingly, the letter yod is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's hardly any bigger than an apostrophe. So how could replacing it with a hay have any spiritual significance at all? Well, it just turns out that Jesus himself spoke to this very issue. Matthew 5, 17 and 18, this is a translation from the Jewish New Testament. Do not think that I have come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Yes, indeed. I tell you that until heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a yod or the tail of a brushstroke shall be removed from the Torah until everything is fulfilled. When a scribe forms the yod with the stroke of his brush, a small tail is formed at the apex of, of the letter. In Hebrew, it's called the keren, or in calligraphy, it's called a seraph. Jesus states that not only is every yod in scripture important, but the little horn at the top of every yod is important. And why does he say the yod is so crucial? Jesus declares in this passage that Emily just read, he came to fulfill every yod in the Torah. You see, Jesus is the essence of the hay that replaces the yod. Jesus, like the letter hay, proceeds out of Yahweh. He comes into our lives through his spirit. He kicks out the self-possessive yod that's in our heart, and he makes us his own. Because it's Jesus, not Isaac, who is the promised child to Abram and Sarah through whom every nation will be blessed. It is Jesus, not Isaac, who is the only son of the father to be taken up the crest of Mount Moriah and sacrificed. It is Jesus. He is the fulfillment of Sarai's name change. Now what does this mean for us, those of us who've accepted the Lord into our heart? Well, the rest of chapter 21 of Genesis tells us what we need to do in response. Genesis 21, 8 to 12. Abraham made a huge feast the day Isaac was weaned. But on that day, Sarah saw Ishmael mocking little Isaac. Sarah said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son Ishmael. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do exactly as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
Judaism holds that Sarah is one of the seven prophets, the Old Testament, because in this passage, she prophesies that our inheritance will come through Isaac and the Messiah is a descendant of Isaac. The rabbis say Sarah is a greater prophet than Abraham also because of this passage. Because God told Abraham, and they say in Hebrew, it's very specific, listen to what your wife Sarah tells you and follow exactly, line for line, whatever she tells you to do. What was it Sarah asked Abraham to do? She asked him to get rid of everything in their life that was based on that old covenant of fear. And we're to do the same thing. We're to cast out our old fears. Our future is with new things that are by grace through faith. We are to cease to live under fear of the law and to begin to live under freedom. And this passage we just read in Genesis 21 um, is expounded upon in Galatians 4, 21 through 25, and then 30 and 31, where Paul indicates that Hagar represents the law and Sarah represents grace. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, why don't you listen to the Torah? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai, the law, for she is in slavery with her children. Moving to verse 30. But what does the scripture say through Sarah? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So we are not children of the slave, but children of the free woman, Sarah. So once again, scripture proclaims that we are the spiritual children of Sarah, which means we should live by faith. Um, in other words, like 1 Peter 3, 6 said, you are Sarah's children if you do what is right and do not succumb to fear. We all have fears, but we're not to give in to our fears. We're not to be paralyzed by our fears or by the thought that we might fail to please God in some way, right? We are instead, not, we're not to devise our own schemes for righteousness. Instead, we're to, as God ultimately enabled Sarah to do, replace our fears with the type of faith that leads to righteousness. I know it's late here, but I just can't finish a lesson on Sarah without talking about the end of her life. Genesis 23, one and two. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Abraham loved Sarah. They were spiritual partners for almost a century. Yeah, he mourned for her. He wept. Sarah is the only woman in the Old Testament who is assigned an age. And she's assigned an age twice. Once when she conceived Isaac as 90, 
and once when she died at 127. This is uh, very important because it implies that after Isaac was born, God gave Sarah another 36 years to enjoy him, to laugh with him, to teach him about the scriptures. In fact, the meaning of Isaac, Itzak in Hebrew, is, is, is laughter. That she enjoyed him very much, we can see from Genesis 24, 66, and 67. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done to bring Rebekah back from Haran. Then Isaac brought Rebekah into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and he took her, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So Sarah had been a pretty good mom. Isaac missed her really a whole lot. She had been a faith role model for him. Maybe today you're facing seemingly insurmountable problems in your life that may make you fear, or you, maybe you're just fearful you can't please God. Follow after Sarah. You'll find she's a great spiritual mother, a valuable role model for a life of faith. We would all do well to follow the example of Sarah. <laughs> 